I'm really excited about today's guest, uh, Ben Smith. I'm actually meeting for the first time. I've been, I was just saying to him off camera, I've been a big fan for years. Ben uh, is a one of the most important media voices of our time. Uh, he's written for the Daily News, the Wall Street Journal, Politico, was the uh, New York Times media columnist, probably best known being the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, causing all kinds of problems over there. Uh, he's recently launched a new news company we're going to talk about, Semaphore. Uh, I think it's great. We're going to talk about it. And he's got a new book coming out next month, uh, Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, Delusion in the billion dollar race to go viral welcome sir thanks for having me Danny the uh, the admiration's mutual from afar well I'll tell you I'll tell you where I really said this is my kind of guy when I'm gonna go back to a New York magazine article a couple of months uh, a couple of years ago and this is the way some of your cohorts these are people that like you described you puckish chaos Asian is how Charlie Warsaw describes his former BuzzFeed news boss he loves to make chaos, Katie Nathopoulos, a BuzzFeed reporter. Smith has a constant desire to stir shit, another one-time colleague. And finally, Saeed Jones put it this way, BuzzFeed editor, Ben is a messy bitch who lives lives for drama. I'm sold. I'm, I'm sold. I'm, I'm reading anything you're writing at this point. Yeah, thank you for the kind words. And I, I, I thought those descriptions were pretty accurate. How's, how's the new venture going? I mean, it takes a lot of balls in this day and age to start a, uh, a, a new news venture. Uh, you're getting a lot of attention. How's it gone so far? You know, it feels good when, when, when at moments when people are this sick of what they're getting, it's a real opportunity to say, Hey, check out something new. And I feel like we've more, I've done startups in the past, Buzzfeed and Politico before that. And f- people are much more open to something new than they've ever been in my experience and kind of interested in, I don't know, we're trying to be more transparent, trying to build around individual journalists, you know, and I think people, it feels natural to people. So it's going well. Clearly, from as a marketer, there's the need something fresh. With every re- piece of research tells you, and you guys recently done some, some research of your own, that people are just dissatisfied with the way they're getting their news now in many ways. So, talk to me. Do a little bit of a brand sell. The points of difference of Semaphore. Basically, I'm a guy. I read the Times. I read the Journal. I get. I watch MSNBC. Uh, I you know. I read the Guardian. I, I mean, I, I read the Financial Times, uh, the Daily Mail. I mean, I go. I, I run the gamut. Vanity Fair. So, what am I getting here that I can't get anyplace else? Yeah. So, I think the thing that we hear from people is less. I'm annoyed about this feature of this publication or that one, and just that people feel ma- three things really: totally overwhelmed, that they don't know what to trust, and to some degree that the news is very parochial coming from a you know, very American, actually. And so, the, you know, the main thing we're trying to do is, is is run at those problems. We are trying to, and we have a, I mean, our theory is that, you, you know, you can't build trust by saying, trust me. You can try mm-hmm. to do it by being as transparent as you can, by not pretending that there's not a person with views, with point of view, writing an article, ideally somebody who really knows what they're talking about. But you can say, you know, here's here's the information I uncovered Here's what I think about it. And by the way, here's what somebody with a different point of view thinks about it. And we've had people trust us more if we say that rather than rather than less. Yeah, um, it's a, in a piece of research you guys did, three quarters of Americans think journalists should give strive to give readers all sides of an issue. I mean, that's pretty across the board point of view. Yeah. Yeah, and it's an e- I mean, it's sort of an easy thing to say and could mean all sorts of things. For us, it means in particular tr- going out of our way to find people who disagree with us, including their voices and giving space to it. And then also, I mean, one of the kind of craziest things about consuming news now is you read a story in a publication you like. And then you're like, but I'm going to go Google the subject and read six more stories to triangulate what really happened. And so we do try to, you know, at the end of our stories, we'll say, here are five other stories on the same topic. They may see it a little differently. Um, so, so you don't have to do that work. And then I guess the last thing is that we are really born global. We're in the U.S. We're in sub-Saharan Africa. And I think really try to include 
global perspectives on certain stories, just because so many of the big stories, you know, social media, the rise of this new right, a lot of the new AI stories just aren't basically American stories, COVID. And if you just take them as something that only if is only decided by the White House and only plays out in the US, you can miss a lot. It's interesting because you go on your, your site and it feels very global from the beginning. I mean, if you just go headline to headline, it just, it has a, until you kind of get down a little bit further to the media stuff, which tends to be a little bit more domestically based, oh, it's yeah. just my, my takeaway, that it is, that flies in the face of what most news organizations, the, the big ones here are based, that there seems to be, I mean, I can watch MSNBC, or I could watch the the evening news, or I could go through the uh, the Times, and there seems to be a lot of this when it comes to the global stories. But it's interesting the way you initially po- pointed out. Yes, the right wing story is not a Trump story; it's a global story, and Trump is the latest in, in a series of of these right wing zealots. Yeah, and the thing is, you can do that well or badly. Like, nobody wants to be told, you know, we from our business class seats over the Atlantic think your problems are too small to care about and nothing interesting is happening. Like, we're covering Trump, we're covering American politics, media, you know, really close up, breaking news, lots of detail. But we are looking around for opportunities to say, you know, in a section of that story, hey, by the way, there's something really interesting playing out in Brazil right now that that if you're interested in this is worth checking out. You raised 25 million bucks, uh, mostly just from wealthy individuals. I got to believe that was very tough to do uh, right now in this time. And particularly, hey, guess what? I'm starting another, I'm starting a news site. I'm starting a news venture. I I, I got to believe that was a tough, tough, tough sell for money. You know, my partner, I'm going to attribute this to him because I don't think anybody wants to, you know, give money to a journalist trying to start a website. But um it was the CEO of Bloomberg before that CEO yeah. of the Atlantic has run a bunch of extremely profitable businesses. And, and I think that's, that gives investors a lot of confidence. Yeah. Wish I could say the same for myself. And you uh, very publicly and, and uh, judiciously gave, you got money from Sam Backman free. You gave that back. Uh, you weren't the other one that uh, got money from him. What was your reaction when one of your biggest investors all of a sudden just shit the shit, the, shit the bed. And that's an understatement. I mean, I think surprise. Yeah. Isn't it amazing in this day and age how that still goes down? How with throughout time, call them Ponzi schemes, call that just that how many smart people can get fleeced again and again and again? Yeah. And a lot is still coming out in that case, just in terms of what utter chaos was happening yeah. behind the scenes at FTX. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, but yeah, you know, I think, you know, basically as you suggested, people are, whether it's tulips or, you know, digital currency, there's just a lot of opportunity to, to tell, to give, you know, feed people's fantasies about, about quick money. I want to go back a little bit, talk about your life growing up in the city. You, you went to Trinity. I guess your contentious nature comes from having a, Dad, who was a Paul Weiss attorney, very, very conservative, and ended up being an appellate court judge, and your mom, completely on the other side of the political spectrum. So you were born, you were born to brawl, basically. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know about brawl, but certainly growing up, and he's he's also quite a devout Christian, and she's Jewish, and I think like you certainly grow up thinking that there are alternate, legitimate points of view on important issues, and you want to, and, and not, you know, and I think it's it's you know it can be a strength and a weakness, right? I think a lot of journalists do tend to be a little wishy-washy and to think, ah, you know what? I think both sides have a point on lots of things. And I think, and certainly, certainly I do. 
how did you, when I was looking at your resume, the Latvia stop surprised me. I see your wife <laughs> is Latvian. Did that get you there or did you meet her there? What the hell were you doing in Latvia? I met her there. Um, she, uh, I was, you know, it's funny. It was a period, as you may recall, when everybody wanted to go to Prague. That uh-huh. was like the hot global city in, in, in the 90s. And I couldn't get a job in Prague, but got a job at an English language newspaper in Latvia, which I guess like an idiot I thought was nearby. It was not really. Um, and wound up stringing for the Wall Street Journal out there. And another interesting stop where it sounds like you really kind of built your chops was the city desk of the Daily News with Maggie Haberman and Thrush. And that that sounds like that's kind of really where you, you got your bones. Yeah, I, I really learned to be a reporter in New York City Hall. And I was we were all at various public different publications at different times. But I think when I got there, I was working for the New York Sun, which you probably remember. Oh, and yeah. uh, Glenn was at Newsday, maybe, and Maggie was at the New York Post. And we oh, were I thought you guys scrubs. were there. Really okay, I thought you we were, were the scrubs time. sitting down in the basement while the real reporters yeah. were up in room nine. There were so many reporters then; they needed two rooms. And I did just, you know, they were very good. And I thought, wow, if these are the junior reporters, like imagine how amazing the real serious grown-up reporters upstairs must be. But it turned out those were the two of the best reporters I ever bounced off. Uh, I, you also had a stop at Politico, which I, I don't think I mentioned in the intro. You clearly became kind of a household name with BuzzFeed uh, and very, very uh, turbulent, exciting time there as editor in chief. If you're going to look back now, you, you spent about a decade there, I guess. Grade yourself on your time at BuzzFeed. Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think, I, I think you know, we did really cool stuff, made huge mistakes. What were the mistakes? spent just, you know, you know, I think it's something, you know, in the most literal sense, just spent, you know, spent ahead of revenue, didn't build a strong business around journalism. But in a bigger sense, I think we were riding this incredible wave of Facebook and of social media. And we were like too deterministic about it. We thought, you know what, like we've got the wind at our back. So, you know, and so, so it's going to work out. And, and didn't totally anticipate how quickly that era was going to end. So what's that a B? That's a that's a B. That's a soft B. That's 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 okay. a B. Um, I think I like you did some great like journalism. I'm really proud of tons of the work, but I but I what but are I you most what are you most proud of? Um, you know, it's journal. I, I'm proud that we we moved that. You know, we were in the mix on huge stories. Some of our coverage of marriage equality early on, we were just, I think, among the first organizations to say this is a huge Central American story that's going to be massive. Broke tons of news on that. Um, yeah, big investigations. It's all it's all sort of day to day, but I think we built like a news organization. I'm real proud of. Probably the most prominent news uh, attention you got was for the Steele dossier. Now, Monday morning, quarterbacking, looking back, give me your thoughts. Is now a more grizzled, wise media veteran. Yeah. I and mean, one of the fun things about writing this book was like just having an opportunity, fun, not fun, to rethink that moment. Um and I think, I mean, I, I still think the notion that, you know, there's this document, everybody knows about it, they're talking about it on TV, but nobody's allowed to see it, isn't really tenable. I think right. I think it was appropriate to, to share it with the public. I do think I did not realize or anticipate the extent to which that document and others, Hunter Biden's laptop, WikiLeaks, kind of became symbols of something. You know, I sort of thought, look, people will 
read it and realize these are allegations. We're not sure if they're true. That's what we and we and we wrote this long disclaimer saying right, that right, saying, right, right, right. saying that there were inaccuracies in it. In fact, that disclaimer then peeled off, you know, and, and the PDF circulated without it. I think technically we could have done things to make sure that the disclaimer was sort of stapled. The context was more like technically stapled mm-hmm. to the document. But I also think, you know, I remain. I, I was really surprised in some ways by by the way in which it became, the document became this sort of thing you waved around and said, Donald Trump is a Russian agent rather than something you read and tried to evaluate. It's because people wanted it to be so true. Yeah. I mean, that was it. You, you, particularly in the media and the, the more left leaning media, you, you wanted, you wanted it. You, this was something we all in our gut believed that that this was a nefarious guy who was evil in ways that we hadn't thought about. And you go, ah, oh, wow, I guess I had this guy right. Yeah, I mean, I do think that's it. But in the extent to which sort of contemporary politics is to- is totally fact free, I mean, I sh- shouldn't have been surprised by, but was you know, not a happy outcome. I ran a. Uh- advertising agency and I like you was a very polarizing figure. Do you think a lot of the backlash was was because you guys were BuzzFeed and there was there had been some envy there and some jealousy there and that maybe had another news organization done it, they wouldn't have taken the level of heat that you guys took? Oh, for sure. I think there were, I mean I think there was a more specific thing, which was that all the very serious, you know, New York Times, Washington Post news organizations had received the document on the mm-hmm. condition they not disclose it. And so were in this unenviable position of not being able to talk about this thing they knew as the document bled out into the political world and influenced all sorts of stuff. Um, and so, and so I think people were in a small way kind of pissed off that we then, because we had gotten it through a side door and not in the, not from fusion GPS that was handing it out yeah. to reporters um, that we sort of put, took, you know, we, we broke the story, but no people, I mean, I think there was a lot of we, Buzzfeed represent, you know, represented, for a lot of legacy media, this kind of like social media driven attack on the establishment, which not wrongly, I mean, that is what we were doing. Do you, I was just giving a lecture at a Columbia MBA class. Just, I like to say that makes me sound smart. And uh, somebody asked me a question that I hadn't thought about in a while. It was a question that was kicked around a lot of uh, early on in Trump's, Trump's rise. You know, the, the co-conspiracy, the co-conspirators, the media, you know, the CNN running when he was at 1% running an hour long, uh, you know, rally and that 1% became 3% and we fed it. And it was, was the media wrong? In other words, it was such, on the one hand, it was such a train wreck. Here we have a reality faux billionaire character running for president. So how do you not cover it? But yet by covering it, you are kind of ensuring his rise. And I hadn't thought about it in a while. It was such a topical question for so long. I'm curious where you come out on that. So, I mean, I think, I, yes, the media screwed up in all sorts of ways, but this is one where pulling back and looking at a global lens is helpful. Like, the same guy got elected all over the world in the yeah. same decade. And the notion that it was CNN, if they'd only given him a few less minutes. I, I mean, I think ultimately people, you know, there was a huge audience in the Republican Party that wanted to buy what Trump was selling. And they weren't tricked by him. They knew exactly what he was about. They knew what kind of a guy he was. And they voted for him, and a lot of them voted for him twice. And I and I think you know, there's no, and I think a lot of them are going to vote for him a third time. The twice and is I, what I, got me. I, I separate the voters who voted the first time because Hillary was a terrible candidate, and you said, look, this guy's an outsider. Maybe some of the horrible things he's saying, he's just saying to get elected. But let's give it a flyer. The people that saw four years of this and said, give me more. I I, I just have to question their core Politi- politics. Politics mean, aside. 
a lot of your fellow citizens. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, but, and but, but, to, it, but I do think like you look at like, you know, you just sort of go to any European country and it's like, you know, the centrist party, which governed for 60 years is now at 3% of the polls and a new party led by like a pop star with amazing hair yeah, is at yeah. 60%. And it's just sort of like anywhere. Is the rise of the strongman across the globe a fun- simple function of the other that so many countries are dealing with? the perception of the new other, whether that's Muslims, whether that whatever that other in history is known, that that's kind of the basic formula that you get enough unhappy people, not happy with a lot in life that you say it's not your fault. It's, it's the Jews fault. It's the Muslims fault. It's the bankers fault. It's the, or other, or if that's not the theory, explain it to me. I mean, I don't know. I think it's takes, I think it's taken very different forms in different places and it's maybe too sort of too soon to try to write some simple explanation, but it was obviously this incredibly disorienting decade in a million ways. Technology is a big part of it. Migration, as you say, is a huge part of it. Um, the Iraq war, the recession. I mean, there was a lot of global, you know, the sort of people feeling horribly mistreated by globalization. It feels like there were, a lot of forces at the same time that, you know, that attracted people to somebody who was just like, I'm going to go blow up Washington. And then when you said to voters, well, like, he's not a nice guy, you know, they said, yeah, we know that's what, that's yeah. why we're there. That's why we want him to do this job. And you, you mentioned, interesting enough, I said on morning Joe this morning and I got shit on by a lot of people. I said, I do believe Trump is unelectable simply because you now have, he lost and now you have January 6th and you'll have the coming indictments. And, if Biden is healthy, I don't, I, these elections come down to four or 5% of the people. It comes down to the suburbanites and the swing voters and independents. I, I don't see them going back to Trump. Uh, a lot of people on the panel disagree with me. And I'm curious your thoughts on that. You know, I feel like I learned after 2016 not to predict don't under stuff right, yeah, in general. Yeah, okay. But, but I might, I kind of basically agree with you. It's not totally clear to me who is, which swing voter is looking at this situation and saying, Ah, now I like this guy more. Yeah, yeah. Let's give me more. Let's give me more. Yeah. I understand the concept of people doubling and tripling, quadrupling down. I don't understand the concept of people who left who will come back at this point. And particularly because the country's basically going in the right direction. Uh, If you kind of macro look at it, obviously a lot of problems. And right, wrong direction track polls always show wrong direction from the voters. But if you look at the economy, if you look at our state and global affairs, you know, interestingly enough, Biden has such low ratings, but he's put points on the board. I, I mean, from a pure competency point of view, more legis- legislative victories than anybody since Johnson, basically. He's obviously done a great job galvanizing the, the world in Ukraine. Uh, he doesn't inspire. He comes off as very old. But I'm curious, Candy, give, give me a, your scorecard on Biden at this point, because I think he's done a pretty damn good job. Yeah, I mean, I think he's right. I think he's, it's not clear that anybody is getting out of the 40s or low 50s. Yeah, no, that, those days are the, over. Yeah, you know, yeah. any anymore. And you can certainly go lower. You can get down into the 20s and he's in the 40s. So I don't know. I mean, I think, yeah, I think basically you're right. And he's been a pretty effective president. He, you know, he got these enormous domestic spending bills through, you know, maybe, maybe at the cost of all this inflation that we're now seeing that people really hate. Yeah. So I, I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to. It's hard to say. It's a little hard to say where are we going to be in a year. Yeah. Um, but so much of contemporary politics, a lot of it is about swing voters, which people forget. A lot of it is about turnout. I mean, tr- both parties yeah. have just been pulling out way more people than anybody ever pulled out before. And I think there are these big questions like, if Donald Trump is not on the ballot, 
do those Republicans show up? And if they don't, you could have a huge Democratic yeah. blowout. But yeah. if Trump isn't on the vet ballot, do Democratic voters show up? I mean, it's a very, yeah. you know, if you yeah. have a sort of accept, you know, if you've Glenn Youngkin is the nominee, maybe nobody turns up and yeah. it's back to it's sort of, I mean, so I think it's American politics in a very strange place. I actually think Youngkin would be a very strong candidate. Uh, and I think somebody like Youngkin could absolutely beat beat Biden. So before we get to the book, I want to talk about book and a little bit more about the website. Your time at the Times, let's look back and reflect on that. Let's give yourself a scorecard there, victories, defeats, because <laughs> I loved your stuff. I, just about everything you wrote, I, I loved there. I just I looked, when you when you would pop up there, I'd You should have I, called I, me and excited. given me tips. I'm <laughs> glad it's nice to know that now. No, I mean, it was, it was, it was really fun. I knew I, I was going to have a sexy read. I mean, whatever it was, <laughs> it was going to kind of get my juice going a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny because I, you know, I basically think of myself as a reporter. It's been my career as a political reporter. Never been an editor before I got to BuzzFeed, and then suddenly, like, so you know, was in this milieu where I was absorbing all these lessons about how you run a media company and how the sort of business operates, and and it was really fun to go out and be like, oh, this is my beat, like this thing that I've been kind of yeah. living in for eight years. Like, I can just treat as a beat reporter and try to break news on it all the time. Um, and it was just, yeah, it just felt like, oh, wow, I've been turned loose. This is really, really fun. I had a great time doing it. And I think it's a weird job, though, because it's sort of like you wake up every morning and like take someone who is in the friend column in your life and move them into the enemy column. Yeah. Like how yeah. long you want to do that? Was Rodan Farrow a friend at one point? <laughs> I mean, I have friendly relationships with every media. Like I wasn't, yeah. but but if you cover, but beat reporters aren't, you're not out there to make friends. And so, yeah. It's a, and it's a uniquely weird beat. Like if you write about politics, you come back to your own industry and not everybody hates you. So, yeah. 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 Uh, you took a lot of heat on the Ronan Farrow thing. And, uh, you know, just for the sim- simple notion that what he was doing was so seen as a benevolent Herculean task. And yet you, you were calling him on certain things. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a bit what you were saying about the dossier before. Um, that 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 the standards are you know when you're writing about people who are particularly people who everybody thinks is a monster the reporting standards are lower and so there was stuff I mean, and and you know there were kind of there was you know nickel and dime stuff basically in the weinstein coverage that was sloppy although ultimately it didn't make you think oh actually we got it all wrong and harvey was a great guy at all you know at all um but there was other stuff that i thought where the new yorker was writing pieces that oh my god the lawyer how am i forgetting his name michael avenatti you know oh, had, uh, had fed that was ronan, that was a, that was a class act that was yeah had fed, guy, had fed the new yorker and ronan stuff that was you know arguably factually accurate but like basically total nonsense about the russians doing this and that because it sort of served you know it served the narrative let's talk about the book traffic it's kind of an am- amalgam of Kind of you, if you kind of were look, looking on the outside, watching you watch the world over the last 20 years, kind of that's what it is. I'm not doing a good job selling it. You'll do a better yeah, job. Thanks, it, thanks. But- I'll put that on the book jacket. Okay. Um, <laughs> the, uh, no, I mean, what it really was in some ways is I kind of, you know, I've been a political reporter on the internet, but in blogging, but really covering politics through about 2012, but had been adjacent to this new world of Gawker and BuzzFeed and all these new media companies and been super interested in them. And I wasn't like invited to the parties, but I kind of knew about the parties and wished I'd been invited. And so for me, at least part of it was going back and kind of calling up all those people and reporting out like, Hey, what was happening when Jezebel was this big hot thing that I kind of vaguely knew about, but I wasn't the audience or, you know, and really 
being like, oh my God, that was this incredibly disruptive entrant into media that in some ways was closer to like the world we live in now on Twitter than anything else. Um, and unleashed a lot of these forces. Um, and then, and yeah, and then, and then in sort of trying to understand essentially in some sense, like the origin story of where we are now. And what if I, I read the, um, what's on Amazon, it's not out for another month or so. Uh, what would you like the net takeaway of the book to be after I get through? Because there's a, you cover a lot of territory in there and there's a lot of swings and twists through our time. You, I, I was realizing the warp speed as I was kind of reading the synopsis that you talk about, well, Facebook and then Twitter and then like, and they were just a few years between the, and, and just where we are right now. It's just, it's mind boggling. And so kind of, where does it really, where's the net? What are, I, it, I, in the most simplistic terms about social media and, and kind of how it's engulfed us, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm basically a reporter, not like a theorist. And so the book is really a narrative and, and kind of the most interesting stories that I found from that, from that period. But I do think that the thing maybe that surprised me most was that you had these folks, Jonah Peretti, Nick Denton, who in some sense were really on the left politically, maybe not mm-hmm. Nick personally, but the Gawk Gawker media was. Um, and who, you know, Jonah had kind of first discovered the viral internet when he pulled this prank where he put the word sweatshop on a Nike sneaker. And when Nike was letting you customize sneakers and this prank went really viral. Um, And so, and that they, you know, and and there was some sense that when Barack Obama was elected and Barack Obama visits Facebook and, you know, sees that world as sort of part of his this new progressive politics that's going to change the world because all these young people have these new tools. And even as they, even as that's happening, a lot of people who we now recognize as the sort of key figures of the new right from the founder of 4chan to Andrew Breitbart to um, Steve Bannon are deeply involved in that world are hanging around that world. Nobody really notices them. It's and, thought to be the bastion of of the left. Yeah, literary, and then at some yeah, point yeah. you look around, and you're like, "Oh, Barack Obama wasn't the consummation of all this. Donald yeah. Trump. Donald was. Trump was. Yeah, and and that was really, in some way, su- really surprising to like. Oh, like I totally, we all totally misunderstood what was happening around us for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what are you working on now? Um, what am I working on now? I mean, we, you know, we're writing a. Writing, making uh, the sausage every day. Obviously, making the sausage uh, M4, for breaking news all over the place. We have a weekly media email that I hope you, you and all your audience signs up for at some Um Yeah, trying to break news. You know, that's that's the coin of the realm. Now you're not doing a subscriber base at this point. It's all advertising, and you were very smart. You started with eight blue chip clients. You, you didn't start with the pillow guy. You just because you're smart enough to understand that. Oh, advertisers look at other advertisers. Oh, I guess this is okay to go in when you get the right kind of advertisers. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I think we certainly like, you know, my, my partner, Justin, has great relationships in, in right. mar- marketing. So, although I do think that, I mean, there is a, you know, we're doing basically our core businesses are advertising, you know, in these digital formats and events. And I think that there's something where if you're a beat reporter who is really covering the hell out of whether it's Wall Street, like my colleague Liz Hoffman or you know, media as, as we've been doing, um, you, you can kind of bring together, you know, that you're being read by the key people in the, who are right in the middle of it and running in running things or incredibly smart and plugged in and that marketers want to reach those folks in particular. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that, and so that's been, and that's very satisfying journalistically too. That that's kind of, it's fun to write for those people. 
the events of becoming a part of your business. I saw you just had Stephen A. Smith and Jen Psaki. Who was the third person on that panel? It was a bunch of them. Chris Licht, Barry, Barry Chris Diller. Lick, Chris Lick. Oh, Diller. I didn't see. Okay. So yeah, it was a series Diller's of interviews in a row. It was, okay. uh, it, was, uh, it was intense, but very fun. What's your take on CNN these days? Um, I mean, I think that. Let me put it that, another way. What would you do with CNN right now? And Chris is a friend of mine, and I've talked a lot with him about this, and there's been a lot of chatter, positive and negative, about what's going on there. So now, Ben Smith, you've launched your your, your website. You've sold it for $400 million, and now you're going to run CNN. Um, I mean, I think one thing that people underestimate about CNN is you pray for news. People yeah. go to CNN when there's huge oh, yeah, things happening in the world. Oh, yeah, there's an earthquake or a plane crash. And yeah, it has been knock That's the on model. wood. That's the model. Yeah. And it has been knock on wood, a, you know, a very slow period for the, for the slowest period in years and years. Like, thank God, by the way, in the news business. And I think when you look at CNN's ratings, part of what you're seeing is that Donald Trump isn't lighting the world on fire, that there hasn't been a huge catastrophe, um, a huge terrorist attack. And so um, I do think that's part of where CNN's ratings are really struggling, but also, I mean, that's a challenging situation because it's really hard to change things when you're cutting costs. Yeah. And Discovery came in with all this debt. There were basically, I don't think that the CNN people thought they were going to have to cut like that. And it's just so much harder to make positive change Those in any kind of organization you're yeah. while you're cutting costs. And I think that's, yeah. and I think they hope that they're out of the woods on that. Um, yeah. And we'll see. While we're on uh, the, the, the cable news world, Fox News, uh, I've always I've asked people this question several times because you you'll watch and you'll see take a guy like Tucker Carlson, and if you just read some of the things that come out of his mouth out of his mouth, you say this guy's a racist. He's you know far, they just just you go can, and I always wonder with guys like that, are they doing performance art or do they really believe it? Do they start out and is it a Trump syndrome where he says build a wall and ah that's what gets the biggest applause? Because some of the things like these are educated guys. And some of the stuff that comes out of their mouths, you go, do they fucking believe it? I mean, we know certain things they didn't believe. It's been proven about Trump. So I'm curious, what do you call what Tucker Carlson does? I mean, I tend to think, you know, having known a lot of these folks through the years, as I'm sure you do, people talk themselves into believing whatever it is that's in their interest to believe and say. And people who have become demagogues on television have talked themselves into thinking it's the right thing and sleep perfectly well at night. And the idea that you're going to catch them totally faking it never really pans out. I mean, but what you do see, I mean, I actually think they probably do believe what they say most of the time, but it's what they don't say. That's so interesting. Right. Like you saw in those, in these documents that have come out in court, saying that he hates Donald Trump. Trump. That's what he's a disaster. You do not see him say that on television because he's a freak because ultimately Fox is totally captive to its audience. Sure. It's a business. All right. Last question I ask is everybody, the premise of this broadcast is broadcast podcast, whatever the fuck I'm doing here is that kind of everything is a brand today. Every person, every movement, every political party, every, so what's the Ben Smith brand? It's interesting. You were, if I can respond indirectly, you were very early to saying that. And I think Mm -hmm. our semaphore is very much built around the idea that, that journalists, although we like all like throw up on our mouths a little at the yeah. thought that we're brands. You know, or I, a lot of people say, I'm not a brand. Bullshit. What are you doing? Yeah. Journalists really, really hate the, that language, but it's, it, but obviously it's the same trend as you see yeah. everywhere else. Um, I don't know. I guess I like my brand just to be getting scoops, you know, yeah. without fear or favor. I like what you just said, because most people, when I ask that question, they'll ramble on. 
well, I stand for this and this. And a great brand is very, very single-minded. So well done on your self self uh, uh, analysis, I'm sir. A, I'm a simple person. Hey, Ben, appreciate it. Been a big fan for years. Continue doing great stuff. It's great to meet you, Danny.